Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. With me is feudal landlord, presumably well on the way to becoming a part-time artisanal cheesemaker, is Thea Lenaduzzi. Hello. Hello, Thea. Hello. I don't know how Baroque I'm going to go with this as the week's progress. I know, but I think the reality of my situation... <laughs> I will just never be able to reveal it because no. it will be such a disappointment well, no, to be involved. But I, I think the contrast is uh, I enjoy as well. You're, <laughs> you're not the most feudal figure, I suppose, ever to draw breath in this country. Uh, you do like cheese? I do. You now own... Tra- do you not? Who does not? I don't love cheese. As we know, as we oh, know. As we I, know, Baby Bell. I yeah. eat Baby Bell. <laughs> That's probably a sign of not... I like cheddar. You don't like cheddar, do you? Uh, some, some cheddar, yes. Yeah. Some An cheddar. aged, mature cheddar. Yes. But not a... And not a lot of it. Really? Not yeah. supermarket filth? No. 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 <laughs> if you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions, type pod1 in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the show this week, our mini theme in the front of the TLS is the American visionary. We have pieces on David Foster Wallace, the composer Lou Harrison, and our lead is on the poet and post-punk performer, Kathy Acker. Georgina Colby has reviewed a biography of her and looked again at her most famous book, Blood and Guts in High School. Georgina will be in the studio to tell us more. It's been a couple of weeks since the Weinstein scandal broke. There's been a commendable outpouring of support for the women who have been abused and some salutary discussion about the issues involved. Alev Scott has written in the paper with two central points. There are plenty of Weinsteins in other branches of the creative industries, like publishing, and what practical steps should now be taken? She has an answer with her. And our arts editor and erstwhile indie pop star Lucy Dallas has been sent to the Dulwich Picture Gallery to see the first UK retrospective of Tove Janssen. Does that feel right to you? Yes. Tove Janssen, who is the creator of The Moomins, which I remember watching as a kid. Did you watch it as a child, dear? No, I think I had a couple of the books. You too, you're, you're, probably too, you're probably too young for The Moomins, aren't you? I had a couple of the books. But not, not I didn't see the TV. It was quite weird. I, yeah. I'm sure you'd be familiar with them. They're the sort of white oh, no, Finnish sort of folklore. Is it Finnish? Uh, yeah, well, she's Finnish. Yeah. She invented them purely. I think, I think, in fact, I read a story somewhere that she first sketched a moomin after having an argument with her brother about Kant. And she just went to their playroom or something and scrawled this strange figure on the wall and then underneath it, I need to be careful how I say this, wrote the word... Can't. Can't. <laughs> yeah. 
I really hope that's true. It's a proto-moomin. I hope that's true. Anyway, Lucy will be getting into all of that. There's something of a resurgence of interest at the moment in the novelist, poet, playwright and feminist Cathy Acker. But who was she? According to Georgina Colby, a woman perhaps reductively seen through the twin prisms of punk and postmodernism. She may well be most commonly remembered through the vibrant images that remain of her or her well-documented battle with breast cancer. Acker died in 1997 in room 101 of a cancer clinic in Mexico. A final postmodern nod there. Alan Moore saying at the time, there's nothing that woman can't turn into a literary reference. Instead, Acker might be better regarded as a late modernist and experimentalist. Using collage and translation, formal tricks and games, her copy of a Virgil collection barely legible for her annotations, translations and grammatical notes. The new biography, After Cathy Acker by Chris Krauss, is a suitably enigmatic effort. Krauss only met Acker twice, and those meetings were tinged with antipathy. But her biographer nonetheless felt a strong sense of crossed destiny sufficient to persuade her to give it a go. With what success is a question that Georgina Colby can answer for as she joins <laughs> Thea and me now. Georgina, welcome. Thank uh, you. Let's talk about generally about Cathy Acker. Mm. What's she well known for now, do you think? In avant-garde scholarly circles, um, Acker... Well, are there such a thing? There, a... there are avant-garde scholarly <laughs> that circles, That sounds yes. terrifying, yeah. <laughs> Acker is known as one of the most significant experimental writers of the 20th century, um, and she's very highly regarded um, in that respect. Um, her work appeared, for example, in the 1979 um, language poetry magazine edited by Charles Bernstein, and that's one side and one conception of Acker. The other, more mainstream yeah. conception, does tend still towards this kind of wild child, enfant terrible of the 1980s. Um, and as you said in your introduction, that's very much the image that dominates on those front covers of the Grove Press editions. Yeah. And it's quite interesting because with the resurgence of Acker's work is actually being revealed a body of images that were very different to those photographs. So Joan Mazellus, for example, photographs her in black and white, very minimalist photographs, very much um, harking back to modernist aesthetics in terms of the portrait, rather than those very stark 1980s images. Which everyone will kind of have in their mind, perhaps, if they have heard of Cathy exactly, at all. It's, exactly. as a, it's as a punk, isn't it, in, in, in a way? Yes, and very much that more superficial idea yeah. of punk um, as well. And does that reduct... I mean, do you think that's... Un, in some ways, she's reductively known in the realms of punk and postmodernism. Um, I do. I mean, I think part of the issue there is the reductive idea of punk itself. Yeah. So she's attached to the more superficial idea of punk, just the aesthetics um, of punk, you know, the leather jackets, tattoos, um, more associated with punk music in that respect. Um, and I was actually talking to Sean Bonney, who's highly influenced by Acker, um, the contemporary poet Sean Bonney. Um, and he um, is influenced by her through punk. Um, and he understands punk more to be a militantly intellectual antagonism. And I think that's much more of the punk prism through yeah. which we should see Acker rather than the superficial punk And she'd prism. want to be seen in that way, I, I, I presume. Partly, yes. Acker 
more than anything, understood her work to be um, evident of the, the modernist way. She makes a distinction between writing to express what is made um, or to make, and she says she very much chooses the latter, the modernist way, so writing to make. Um, rather than what is made, and, and she, I mean, she was she was published by Grove Press as well, mm. so that's telling in itself. Because at the time they were publishing uh, Jean Genet and Ionesco and people like that. Right. Yes, and and that was quite um, a radical move to publish um, Acker's work. And when she first sent Blood and Guts in high school, and um, which has recently been published um, by, Penguin. by Penguin. By Penguin, yes, by Penguin. Um, Can I have a look at that? Where you just wait? Yeah, and just Yeah. And tell, tell us about Blood and Guts in High School, because it, it, is it any good? I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a it's novel. It's the work for which she's best <laughs> it is a, I, I think yeah. if you ask anyone who had heard of her in the mainstream, they'd probably say Blood and Guts in, in High School, wouldn't yeah. they? Yeah, um, It's a remarkable work. Um, it's a collage. It harks back to the Dadaist aesthetics of the early 20th century. You have her rewritten um, pieces um, of um, César Viejo, the Black Heralds in there. You have Stéphane Malamé and Coupe de Day. Um, all of these are spliced in with Acker's um, kind of life writing. Um, and it's very much a modernist um, collage in there. She also experiments with language. And this is something that um, a lot of contemporary writers um, are taking up in her work. So you have in the middle um, that um, section called The Persian Poems, um, which was actually published as a separate volume um, in 1972. So long time before um, Blood and Guts in High School. But what's really remarkable about the work um, is when you think about it in terms of the archive materials. So the dream maps um, that are published here are Xeroxes. Drawings, aren't they? Yeah. In the archive at Duke University, these actually really large-scale framed art objects. And so the actual materials for Blood and Guts in High School are are much more um, diverse and heterogeneous than this any publication can really um, give breath to. And is she read for pleasure? I mean, when I was read, I read that a while ago, but it struck me a bit sort of Gertrude Steiny in the sense that there's lots of formal experimentation going on. But then you slightly wonder, are people only going to it for the for the performance of the mind? Or rather, is there enough that you can sort of hug if you wanted to, in, in, enough of sort of narrative enjoyment there? I'm not sure um, Aka ever wrote anything you could hug. No. Um, <laughs> and intentionally so, yeah. um, I think. It's interesting that you brought up um, Stein. Um, in a 1986 interview for Women's Review, um, Aka said that Stein was the mother of us all. Um, so she was highly, highly influenced um, yeah. by Stein and that um, formal experimentation. Um, but Blood and Guts in High School, like all of Acker's works, um, she stated in an interview um, that she understood her works to be able to be entered at any point by her reader. So she didn't want to write anything linear. Yeah. It's intentionally completely non-linear. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes her works difficult. And it's it's a modernist difficulty. It's an intentional difficulty. It's, it's breaking conventional sense and perception and meaning um, and, and challenging so a nightmare to, habits. So a nightmare to write a biography of her in that sense, <laughs> trying to construct a linear narrative out of someone who objects to in that way to linear narrative. So how has how has, um, Chris Krauss gone about doing this? Well, Krauss's work um, is is interesting. Um, oh dear! <laughs> <laughs> Condemned with faint interesting is is. I, I got the sense from the review that you you've got reservations here, haven't you? I do. Not about. 
the material per se. Um, so obviously a lot of research has gone into this biography. Um, as you say, Acker is not an easy um, subject um, for a biography. And Krauss reveals some really fascinating um, facts about Acker's life. And, and mostly, I think, the value um, of this biography um, lies in the revelation of Acker's really deep involvement in the New York avant-garde scene of the 1970s. And this phase of Acker's um, career and life is very, very rarely documented. Um, so there's lots here um, that's new um, and, and that's important. Um, she documents, for example, Acker's frequenting and readings at St. Mark's um, Church in New York, yeah, yeah. for example, um, and her close intellectual relationship with David and Ellen Anton um, alongside Jerome Rothenberg um, and other avant-garde figures um, in the circles. So this is very valuable. Um, <laughs> but it's relentlessly critical, I think. Oh, and, really? And there's well, they, a, their paths crossed mm, in life, didn't they? And, only and, a couple and of they times. Did. Yeah, it's a funny thing. Cause, well, maybe it's was good there, that they were was there a compet- Is there a competitive element there? <sighs> It's not really for me to judge um, <laughs> uh, on that. But they, they did. They had um, they both had a relationship to Sauvert Lautringer, um, who was uh. um, the publisher of Semiotext, um, Acker's, um, one of Acker's partners, and, and then um, and then Krauss's partner. And she's, like, she's open about that. I mean, you, mm. you quote yeah, her. Yeah, she's very open She says that, you know, we, we, we had our two brief social meetings were tinged with antipathy. Yes. So it wouldn't disqualify her as a, as a possible biographer, or should it, do you think? No, I don't think it should. And, and what's interesting about this biography in many ways is that it's sort of an experiment in life writing. And, and um, Krauss's um, I Love Dick, um, published in 1997, was also an experiment in life writing, but an experiment in her own life writing. And I think there's a, a difference there in terms of you know experimenting with a critical biography of someone else. And when Krauss first... Um, did her readings in London when she was writing the work in January 2015. She spoke at Raven Row and I went to see her um, speak. And the book was very aptly marketed as literary friction. Um, And this idea of literary friction is really interesting because it articulates very accurately the tension in this work between Krauss, the biographer, and Acker's own voice in the biography, which is obviously those sections are selected by Krauss. Yeah. Um, they focus very much on her personal life. Um, and is that good in a way? Because that sounds to me, reading a bit of Acker and hearing you talk about Acker, that's, that sort of frictional approach is, the only, is perhaps arguably the only way of, of dealing with someone like her. I think the issue with the biography is that it sits uneasily with the critical reflections on Acker's work. They're often read, so Acker's work's often read biographically, and they're more than that. I mean, you talk about ethical issues, I'm interested in that. Is it because it delves too much into who she was sleeping with? Is that what we're, we're, we're saying? There is a lot of documentation um, of her personal life. A lot of Acker's intimate letters um, are used. And I suppose the question there is, to what extent extent should we um, yeah. you know, excerpt intimate letters um, and what do you think? I would have liked to have seen a more objective biography, but perhaps that's not what, what, what Krauss wanted to do. I do think um, that there are issues with the, with the judgments that Krauss seems to be making um, on Acker, particularly in terms of her personal life and the revelation of some of the aspects of her personal life that wouldn't be known if it weren't for this biography. 
which is odd because she seems to me as someone who deliberately lived quite a lot of her life and her writing was very personal. Is that fair to say that it's, it's if she wanted us to know this stuff, we perhaps would have known it already? I suppose there's, there's, there's the personal and there's the persona, though. So mm. I mean, they're different. They're different things, and and it's up to her. It's up to Acker. It's up to any writer how much of the person they put into their work mm. and whether they, at the same time as putting themselves into it also puts things that aren't themselves it's up to them mm. to say which is which you can't decide that everything that they've put in one piece because there are elements of the personal therefore everything in that piece is personal do you see what i mean well i don't know i mean because she's de dead and presumably she got this information through legitimate means she got the archive of the material wherever she got them from she got them legitimately is that not what biographers do they delve into the literary remains and other remains of a writer and and, and exhume them Yes, um, it is what biographers do. It's it's just whether that critical force and the biographical readings um, of Acker's literary experiments um, uh, yeah. really um, give breadth um, to her formal experimentation, whether they... Um, is it too simplistic to effectively say... It is, 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 is the point, I suppose. Yeah, I think that the, the heavy focus on um, Acker's personal life impacts um, the way in which the critical works are, are read and the way in which they are then presented in this yeah. biography. And, and I think there, there's an issue there. Um, Let's talk briefly about uh, Acker's legacy, I suppose. Mm. So you talk about her, I think your last sentence says, um, is a sign of the recognition of the significance of her work and its importance to contemporary writing. I wonder where do you see her influence most visibly lying now? Well, Acker's very influential to contemporary women's experimental writing um, and avant-garde writing um, more widely. Um, so if we think of performance artists um, and experimental writer and media artists such as Carolyn Bergvall, um, okay. for example, and her works Drift and her recent um, work Oh My Oh My, they spring to mind in terms of the experiment with language and linguistic plurality. Aka used lots of different languages um, in her works and often she didn't translate them. Um, and this is very much what Carolyn Bergvall um, mm. does in the contemporary as well, um, to create plurality, to resist um, reduction to monolinguism, yeah. um, which is often associated with nationalism, etc, etc. So there, there's a political force um, to this linguistic plurality. And, and she was a big influence um, on Carolyn Bergvall. Is she influential, influential in feminist terms, do you think? So? Absolutely. Acker's a really important feminist writer. In Blood and Guts in High School, um, it was written at the height um, of second wave feminism. Um, and she's very much taking issue with what she conceived at that time as patriarchal language, patriarchal um, constraints. Her work shifted um, as the time shifted. So her later work um, is less rigorous in terms of um, second wave feminism and that very kind of like um, hardcore yeah. um, feminism. But she's absolutely a feminist. What do you think she would have been doing now? I guess I'm struck by the fact that someone like Elfrida Jelinek, the Austrian playwright, won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2004 for sort of similar things. They were contemporaries. Also, interestingly, and I only discovered this a few days ago, Kathy Acker interviewed the Spice Girls. Mm. Did she? Which I just think as an idea. Who I mean, whoever actually, commissioned yeah. that was... That who, was for, who for? Uh, I think it was for The Guardian. Really? Yeah, which, I mean, so what my point is, is it's interesting to see her form of, of feminism coming up against the subsequent waves of 
So I wonder where she would, where you think she would be now. Well, I think she would be in a similar place to Bergfall or a feminist performance artist such as Riddle Olsen. Women who experiment with language or artists and poets, I shouldn't gender it, um, who experiment with language as a means to bring to light certain issues in culture that may or may not be able to um, may not be able to be represented by more conventional means of representation. So, for example, splicing languages together, using text and image um, in diverse forms as a means to give voice to perhaps people who don't have a voice in contemporary, who aren't represented um, politically. So I think she would have moved with the notions of feminism to be striving for for that level of equality and we should have been something i was reading some stuff by audrey lord who's kind of been rediscovered by young feminists effectively because she wrote very uh, aphoristically and you kind of then she became discovered again and i just wonder whether that would have happened to to kathy acker would i suppose she'd never been forgotten to be rediscovered though is that true though i don't know well, if we talk to a load of 20 year olds do they a, know her in mm. a recent interview um with chris kraus um Matthias um, Wegener, um, who's the executor of Acker's Will, he said that after Acker died, there was a, a dip in recognition. Um, and then there's been um, a resurgence um, in her work, in terms of recognising her work. Really, you just can come from teaching first year yeah. undergraduate English students. I wonder how many of them, if you said Kathy Acker, would say to you, Oh, the experimental feminist. Yeah, but in maybe a sense she's in a line with you know going way back Virginia Woolf and, and all of absolutely that yes, of and that's exactly where she should be placed. Yeah. Um, but like but is she? How many? How many of them do you reckon have heard of her? Um, my first years. Yeah. Well, the question there is how many have heard of Stein. A lot of them haven't. Yeah. So yeah. I think by the time you get to master's level, I mean I teach Acker on my master's um, course in experimental women's writing. People have heard of Acker. They're interested. In her work, she's a big name um, in scholarship and women's writing and feminism, but she's still less known um, outside um, of those circles. But with the publication of Blood and Guts in High School um, and Krauss's biography and forthcoming biographies by Jason McBride, then, you know, she's she's getting more attention. Georgia Nicole, we thank you very much indeed. Brilliant. Thanks. Thank you. In just a few weeks, the term Weinstein has shifted from a tearful name check during an Oscar speech to an abstract noun denoting a sleazy male. He's a Weinstein or a shortcut adjective. Most women have had a Weinstein moment or a verb of predation and cruel assertion of power. Weinsteining has already entered the urban dictionary to that effect. Alice Scott, a freelance writer, has her own experience of a publishing Weinstein. When she was 27, she was approached by a famous author keen to congratulate her. A lunch soon led to a lunge from which she struggled to extricate herself. Alev says she's been angry for years and to her anger is added guilt that my silence may have freed him to behave similarly to other women. The largely freelance world of the creative industries, its reliance on patronage and connection, makes it a fertile breeding ground for Weinsteins. There's frequently no HR department for the individuals working in these spheres and one phone call or one grope can launch or end a career, as Alev says. Tackling the problem is, of course, not immediately straightforward. We are liable to see the rise of vigilante policing, like the spreadsheet denoting and denouncing shitty media men. 
The intention may, of course, be benign, and the Whisper network, of which this is a concrete manifestation, has undoubtedly acted as an early warning system to women in the past. But the potential for damaging inaccuracy is also obvious. So what solution is possible, if any? Does the world of publishing need to do more to confront its own Weinsteins? Alev Scott joins us now. Alev, welcome, uh, and thank you so much for, for, for doing this piece and talking about this. Is it worth just saying very briefly on, on your own experience? Yeah, my experience was something that shook me quite considerably at the time, and then I decided to put it behind me because, frankly, the, the world of publishing is very small, and it's, as I explained in my piece, it's a big, big decision to, to actually come out with a concrete accusation against someone who's very well known and and quite powerful. So I decided to put it against um, behind me and then in common I'm sure with a lot of women recently the Weinstein episode got me thinking again and I mentioned my experience in the piece not I don't I don't want to make a big deal of it in itself it's just prompted me to think about how we can stop this happening and there's a lot of hand-wringing going on there's a lot of column inches being devoted to the problem at large but not really much being said about how to tackle it and I think um, something actually needs to be done and I propose a mentorship system. Can I just ask why did you choose not to name the man you write about? Several reasons some of them are quite complicated fundamentally I think having seen what's happened to Weinstein and I'm not suggesting that any of the women who came out with um, with concrete kind of on record accusations against him, naming him, were wrong to do so, in fact, entirely the opposite. But personally, I'm not sure I'm prepared to, to ruin this man. And I think an author is not in the same position of power as a producer like Weinstein. Um, a Hollywood producer has a lot of careers at their fingertips that they can make or break. They have a huge amount of power in a way that an author doesn't. So that's one distinction I'd like to make. But um, the other reasons are, are sort of slightly more subtle and personal. But um, I've certainly asked myself about the ethics of it a lot. Um, and it was something that I even thought um, meant I couldn't write a piece at all about Weinstein or what I wanted to propose because I thought um, what what we're seeing at the moment is the importance of coming up with names. If I'm not going to come up with a name, do I have any right to say anything? Maybe I should just shut up. And then I thought about it a lot and eventually I came to the conclusion that I still wanted to write something. I still feel I have the moral justification for doing so. I don't think I have to come up with a name in order to have a point to make and an argument to make. It seems to me striking in all of this, I don't know if this isn't noted, you've thought about this in this way, that much of the narrative around the whole of the Weinstein story is a kind of criticism, either implied or overt, of victims speaking out. And is that way, I wonder, symptomatic of the problem that, you know, that Weinstein get, allegations get made and then almost attention immediately flips to the women who took time to speak out or didn't speak out. That seems to me part of the problem, possibly, do you think? It is, but it's also inevitable. I don't think it's even possible at this point to just sideline all of that and concentrate entirely on the person being accused of all these. I mean, the women are relevant. They're, they're, they're part of the story. If I came forward, for example, if any, if anyone came, comes forward, what, what they have to prepare themselves for is a lot of scrutiny, a lot of really quite horrible backlash on social media, a lot of 
responsibility to then see it through to the end. If you name someone and accuse them of something, you're taking on a legal responsibility that can end in court. Do you really want to be the person who's known forevermore as the woman who took down X? I've criticized myself for that privately, and I'm prepared to take on that kind of criticism, but I'm, I'm being honest. And I do think that we should just try and move forward a little bit in terms of thinking about what can be done. I'm still very interested and prepared to talk about the whys and wherefores of coming forward with a name or with an anonymous account or whatever. But I, I think it's more important to concentrate on what can be done at this point. And so tell us what, what can be done. What Tell us about your, your proposals. When it all came out, I, I talked to a lot of friends about the whole issue. And I thought, it's just extraordinary to me that... Um, that the Weinstein stuff happened for so long that everyone knew it was an open secret. I mean, everyone's said this already, but what if there had been some kind of commission, some kind of regulatory body that that women could have submitted anonymous accounts to, anonymous allegations could, that could then be kind of racked up, collated, um, discussed, investigated if need be, and this would all have come to light far sooner. And a regulatory body in, body in the arts, as I say in my article, is a problematic concept for, for several reasons. Um, and when I first started talking about it with people, they were saying, well, you know, that's that's kind of a nice idea, but it's not really going to work. Then I read a speech um, by a, producer, a female producer, uh, I think her name is Kathleen Kennedy, in Hollywood. Yep. Um last week and she proposed a commission quite a comprehensive large-scale commission uh, with a kind of wide range of professionals involved which would do exactly this which would tackle the problem try and put in into place some kind of um, professional practices that should be adhered to and I and then that gave me a, a certain amount of courage I thought well maybe it can be done I talked about it with my parents my father's a lawyer he was really not impressed by the idea he thought it would never work for publishing at least um, and I can kind of see I can see his arguments for that. Um, for one thing, it's an incredibly expensive thing to have a regulatory body with tribunals and lawyers and all this stuff. And who's going to pay for that in publishing? It's already a very cash-strapped world. So I could I could see the drawbacks. And then eventually, the idea I decided on was some kind of guardian or mentoring program, um, which I think would be very useful anyway, because you know, starting out in writing in your 20s or whatever age you start is is confusing there's a lot that no one tells you about how to deal with, in, with publicity how to deal with this that and the other agents um but also as i as i said it's an unregulated world and weinsteining happens in publishing as in every walk of life and um and i think it would be perhaps perhaps not the most comprehensive way of dealing with the problem but it's a start and I, I wish I had had a mentor I have had several unofficial mentors but if we can make it a little bit more official a little bit more formal um, I think that would be a good thing because there I are, there are done, things but... like the Society of Authors for example that exists which is a, where people who write can become members and they get a certain amount of benefit from that it gives out funds to, 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 to writers in order so they can carry on writing their books. Is it something like that where it would be a voluntary system where people can say in a, on a website somewhere, I'm happy to be a mentor and then writers can contact them and that mentor themselves would be part of a circle of mentors. So if someone came to them and said, do you know so-and-so is doing this? I can't believe this happened to me. There'd at least be a forum to discuss it, even if there's no formal powers of action. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, that's exactly the idea. I suppose uh, there are a lot of these kind of slightly disparate, um, small 
unions or societies or so on. And what I would like is to harness the zeitgeist of the of the Weinstein moment, as it were, and do something that maybe is not completely devoted to that. As I said, there are other things that young writers need help with when they're starting out in writing, but but certainly something with an air of kind of protection or guardianship. Um, because that's what we need to acknowledge is needed. Um, so I don't want something that already exists that is sort of, you know, tweaked or um, there are a few a few sort of token meetings about how do we deal with sexual harassment. Um, I want something that's a bit more targeted and a bit more explicit about what it's doing. Uh, Woody Allen, um, for reasons that are probably too obvious to state, has expressed concern about witch hunt mentality developing in Hollywood particularly, but... I'm sure he'd say the same thing about other areas in in sort of the post-Weinstein world. Do you have any sense that, that there's a risk of that? I do have certain concerns about, for example, the shitty men in media yeah. spreadsheet um, that you mentioned and that I talk about in my article. There's a distinction between the Whisper Network, which is an unofficial, um, obviously word-of-mouth uh, system of, of keeping other women informed of problematic men, you know, Weinsteins, as it were, um, which exists in many industries and absolutely should exist because that's often the only way that women can can sort of warn each other about these men. But there's a difference between that and a published list on the internet yeah. of anonymous claims that often I think people add to, we, we, don't, we don't know, we don't know what, what the sources are, we, we don't know who these women are, and that's fine, and that's the whole point in a way. I mean, anonymous women should, or rather reports anonymous reports from women should be treated not with not with complete disdain they should be listened to but there's there is a danger that that men are just sort of they're kind of out there and they become victims in themselves in that kind of scenario where there's a spreadsheet being circulated and it's just i don't know i don't know about the term witch hunt i think it's used quite lazily sometimes i do i do certainly see a problem with woody allen using it yeah. as you said for reasons that are way too obvious to go into um, you mentioned men as victims and there's a part in your in your piece where you talk about a friend of yours who said he'd experienced examples of harassment by both men and women and i'm interested in in this notion of equivalence because the the problem I suspect is if you start if we all start talking about men and women being victims of sexual harassment we we imply even if we don't want to that the problem is equal between the two genders when it quite clearly isn't um I actually also read your tweet earlier today about um, I'm interested in your thought yeah I mentioned Thea's thoughts on this so basically Harry Styles is standing on stage and he walks to a group of hands which is stretched out and one of them grabs at his crotch and he pushes it away and walks off and the question is, is this sexual assault? And I feel instinctively, but I'm really interested in, in pursuing the logic of this, that it's not sexual assault for reasons of context and consequence. He's a powerful person. He can literally brush it off. And it doesn't seem to me to hit a threshold in a way it would do with even a, a female pop star. Uh, am I wrong there, do you think, um, Alev? I don't know. I mean, we have to leave it to the lawyers to define what sexual assault actually is. I agree with you that there's a huge difference in context. Um, we just, I think as a society and with reason, we sort of see men as, as more powerful in these situations. So a woman is almost automatically more of a victim in a, in a case where there's some kind of sexual pass made at her, let's say, um, to avoid the term assault for, for the moment. It's interesting, if I may, I'll just go off on a slight tangent. Go but, on. Um, it's relevant. I'm I'm on the island of Lesbos, and 
a couple of nights ago, I was in a taverna with a male NGO worker, and there was a very drunk, uh, middle-aged Greek woman at the next table with a young Syrian man. And all of a sudden, they, they were ca causing a bit of ruckus. Um, and all of a sudden, my friend said, oh, my God, I just recognized that woman. She's another NGO worker from the camp. And it's strictly forbidden um, for us to have any interaction at all with refugees outside the camp. And really, I should report her. I don't think I will, but I should. And I said, why not? And also, if it was the other way around, if it were an older NGO worker and a young Syrian woman, would that be different? And he said, of course, it would be different. And I said, why? And he said, well... I don't know, it would just be, it would be exploitation, it would be, it would be pervy and creepy and wrong. And I don't know, it gave, it gave me pause for thought, because perhaps we are guilty of double standards, you know, that woman was still crossing a line. She was a middle-aged woman, and her victim, as it were, was, was a young man. If it were the other way around, there'd be no doubt that people would see that as wrong. But somehow it's less wrong when the older party is a woman and when the victim, in inverted commas, is, is a man. So that's just a. An I example. think it is less. What do you think? I think that is less wrong, though. I, 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 I don't. Do. I mean, again, context it, comes into it at the very, very start because we're presumably talking about a context in which the man would be desperate for help and the woman yeah. is in a position to help. And so immediately they're unequal in that sense and her. Any abuse of power that she decided to do, I think in that case it is he, he probably is a vulnerable party. I think that's right. He's, he's almost vulnerable for, for political reasons rather yeah. than gender reasons. Yeah, I wonder yeah. whether that's a distinction. Yeah. But so I think that is an important distinction. And actually, I agree with you, Thea, that I think the rules are there for a reason. I think that kind of relationship or whatever we saw was troubling because now, you know, that woman feels that she has to prioritise this man ahead of other families that she, she, she should be prioritising, or maybe she's now blackmailable or whatever. So that's one issue. If we just take that aside for a moment, let's pretend that she's not an NGO worker and he's not a refugee and just take it down to sexual basics, as it were. My friend, the NGO worker I was with, said, look, quite frankly, she's a middle-aged woman who probably just really wants to sleep with this young, attractive man. And he is a man who frankly wants to sleep with any woman because he's very frustrated like like most young men in, in the camp so we have to bring the context in a little bit there but um but he said they're both happy she she's getting what she wants and he's getting what he wants why is it exploitation he's not the one that's drunk actually she's the one that's drunk she's put herself arguably in a vulnerable position but but she, it's not like she's plying with him with drink um I don't know. There, there were lots of shades that made it quite confusing to, to put in a clear black and white moral setting, yeah, as it were. I mean, the same would go for your Harry Styles example before, in a sense, because, yes, he, you know, he's he's able to brush it off. Um, but we know nothing about his deeper context. We know nothing about what that might mean to him. We know nothing about his his background. I'm not saying that there is an equivalence. I do think that this is a this is a. Uh, a, a women's issue, like well, it's it's a wider issue, but yes, women are the most vulnerable I, I think parties. Yeah. But I, I kind of agree. I just feel the deck is stacked mm. if you're a man. So for that to be overcome, it would have to be a serious example of in, of of abuse. And I, I think therefore it is easier to say that the, the Harry Styles situation doesn't hit a threshold in in the same mm. way because the deck is stacked in his favour in every other respect, irrespective of what we know about him or don't know about him. He's not he's not a a vulnerable victim in the same way 
as I think a woman would be, for all sorts of societal, biological reasons as well. But it's an interesting point. I mean, and I guess we should end it by asking, Alev, is it good that we're talking about this sort of stuff? I was talking to, to, to a woman who works at the TLS and she said it feels like a real turning point we're now seeing where you can talk about this stuff and stuff that may have been suppressed and pushed away is starting to come to the surface. Do you share that optimism or do you think if we don't do something concrete, this will just dissipate with the next scandal? I, I really hope it is a turning point. I'm certainly trying to work on that basis. I think it really has hit home. And I think many women like me are thinking about their own experiences and talking to their, you know, the men in their lives, their fathers, boyfriends, whatever. Um, and I, I really, I really hope it is. And and just quickly on the point of uh, the decks being st- stacked against men, that may be the case. But I also think there's a real danger of alienating men if we don't talk about the issues where it hits them as well. Yeah. I mean, my friend who didn't want to go on record, for example, for the piece, that's really sad. I think it's a shame that he felt he couldn't speak out. I think men should be speaking out as well, because if we make it just a woman's problem or, or you know, push men's issues to the side as like barely relevant, how can that end well? It's it's alienating. I, I don't want to do that. I think everyone has to be brought into the conversation. I love Scott. Here, here. <laughs> yeah, here, here. Thank you very much indeed. I, I don't disagree. My wife actually texted me to say she didn't agree with me about Harry Styles either. She thought that it is, it is. He's a, uh, he's he's a young guy. I mean, actually, have no idea how old he is. No, I presume like he's quite young. Yeah, he's thought. a celebrity, so that's a whole other category of vulnerability. There, I suppose. And I, I, I mean, it, power is an illusion in in that in that game. I suppose. Yeah, but I think it is important. I think context and I think context and consequence and intent are all mm. important. And, look, and to be honest, I can. I think we'd all agree that sort of behaviour, grabbing anyone's anything, is unacceptable. So I can. I can totally concede that point. It's just. I do wonder when you start getting to the cause so many debates you have. What about Men's Day? You mm. know, it's like International <laughs> Women's Day. What about International <laughs> Men's Day? And you kind of think structurally, it's so unequal mm-hmm. that. When you start saying, well, it's, you know, men are... And I used to do phone-ins where you talk about this. I used to have to do lots of phone-ins on sexual assaults and sexual harassment. And people, of course, say, what about men? Yeah, but absolutely what Alev said is is true. It, it, we need... It needs to become a thing that both... Uh, all parties feel equally involved and that equally have a stake in. And, you know, the yeah. more people can talk about their own experiences, the better whether they're uh, women, men, trans... You don't have to be Whatever. a victim to have a stake in it. No, that's, of that, course that, that, not. That's the critical of course point. Not. Also, that, it's know, the same as feminism more broadly. Exactly. And you don't have to have a daughter. Exactly. You know, oh, my God. That's such an annoying <laughs> phrase, isn't it? Uh, there's a great joke about Woody Allen, which I saw on Twitter, which is because everyone was saying, uh, as a father of a daughter, and they said, <laughs> Woody Allen said, as a husband to a daughter. <laughs> Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. 
Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Finnish writer and artist Tove Janssen is probably one of the 20th century's most celebrated illustrators. She gave us the Moomins. And those strange, white, hippopotamus-like creatures have to a degree been responsible for eclipsing an expansive oeuvre, not much seen or thought about outside the artist's home country. You might not, for example, think of Janssen as an emerging surrealist painter of the 1930s or an abstractionist in the 1960s. You might have forgotten that she cut her teeth as a political cartoonist. One strip gave us Hitler as a dyspeptic baby, surrounded by Europe's leaders who tried to placate him with cake slices of territory. Janssen was herself aware and concerned about this Moomin effect. Now, a new exhibition at the Dulwich Picture Gallery in South London has brought together 150 works to redress the balance. Lucy Dallas, the TLS arts editor and longtime admirer of Tove Janssen, went along with Sointu Fritze, the chief curator of the Athenium Art Museum in Helsinki, where the exhibition started. The show has been in a little larger format, first in Japan, where it toured in, at, at five venues, at five art museums. And of course, I mean, the, there is a Moomin mania and a Tuve Jansson mania in Japan, very strong. Mm. And it was uh, just enthusiastic, because in Japan, it, she is like a mythological figure. I was going to ask you about that. Why do you think that is, particularly in Japan? Probably it's due to many factors, but... but uh, I think there is in in her expression, if you think about the tradition of the woodcuts in, in Japan and the aesthetics, mm-hmm. so there's something that really appeals. I mean, the moments, they are so universal, and there is something that really touches the Japanese soul. Of course, there is in Japan, there is this notion of cuteness. Yes, and that's quite a strong notion, isn't it? And that's one side, I mean... Not by any means the only side, but that's one side of the moomins, isn't it? Yeah, so it's the cuteness, which is one part of the Japanese today's aesthetics and which is very strongly related to animations and to comics. And, uh, of course, Tuve Jansson, it was in, in early 90s, the animation series that, that is spread worldwide about the moomins. It was made in Japan, we're together with Japanese animators, and so the, they, who kind of transformed her Finnish archipelago landscape into a Japanese landscape with the mountains and so on. Mm. So it is um, a little like a cultural fusion. Yes. And this, I'm, I'm sure this is uh, one reason. Yes. Yeah. Among, among many. <laughs> um, I was going to say, in fact, she's known worldwide, um, but, it's, but it is, as you say, for the Moomins rather than for her art and for her paintings. And mm. are, in this exhibition, are you trying to redress that balance a little bit? We are trying to to show how much she, she was going beyond the moments, uh, and because, because for her, actually painting was her greatest passion, and that was where where her ambitions were, more or less. She was she was uh, she wanted to be a renowned pain, painter, and it was kind of always there until 1975 when she stopped painting, kind of let it go. She was uh, not just. Uh, a painter. She was also a person who did a lot of theater production. She wrote lyrics for songs. She made all the books for adults. 
and the cartoons, which were, of course, they were moments, but still the scope of her oeuvre, it was, it was so extensive, like um, the author of the latest biography of her, Tuula Karjalainen, how she puts it, that uh, it is, the material is so extensive that if anybody is trying to cover the whole she feels like suffocating under the excess of the material. Because she has to cover a writer yeah. and an illustrator and a cartoonist and yeah. a theatre person. Yes, no, I can and see nobody, that's a nice, nice problem to have. And with. nobody yeah. can cover it, but she could as, as, yes. the, as, as, the, as the creator. maker, creator of it. Yeah, sure. Um, I was going to say that in terms of reputation, because in the UK, her reputation, uh, I, I suppose apart from the moment, but she's got a growing reputation as a writer, as a serious mm-hmm. writer. Yeah. Um, for books like The Summer Book yes. and Fair Play. Um, and there's authors like Philip Pullman and Alice Smith who've been saying that mm. she's a wonderful, serious writer. Um, but, but she thought of herself... Do you think first she thought of herself as an artist? I think she, for many, many decades, she thought of herself primarily as a painter. Mm. But the identity of an author was also there since the birth of the movements. The identity of an illustrator was also there. She had, she had the highest expectations regarding painting. Yes, okay, she yeah. was made perhaps hardest on herself. And it was, the, it was, it was also the realm where she had to struggle most. It, yes. was, it, was, it was the most difficult thing. It was the most intimate thing. Yeah. She, she said in an interview in 1951 that painting is such an intimate thing that I am, I am by no means able to speak about it in public. Right. Okay. Because it was that was the thing that was the thing that she found most difficult and yeah. kind of closest to her heart. Yeah. Because the humor and wit and and all all the creativity that was combined with the, with the writing and illustration, it uh, was like breathing. It it came much easier. Yes. Sure. Yes. I read about she. she there's quite a lot of agonizing yeah. about the art, isn't there? Yeah. In in terms of this exhibition. Um, it's, I think it's, uh, it's surprising for us how much she was grounded in that tradition. She trained as a fine artist. Mm. She came from an artistic family. She went to Paris to study. She yeah. was influenced by the Impressionists. She produced lots of self-portraits in that, in that very traditional yes, Western yeah. line. Uh, and later on, she became interested in, in abstraction and moved, moved again. And how would you, if you had to, this is a horrible question, how would you define <laughs> her as an artist, as a painter? How would you define her um, her style? Like? Well, she's always narrative. Mm-hmm. Even when she's abstract? Even if, when she's abstract. She, she was, uh, this is a quote from one of her letters that uh, I am trying to be as abstract as, as possible. But she was always anchored in reality. Mm-hmm. So she, she, she needed the concrete starting points. But... I think she was um, the narration and the storytelling. It, it is, it is, it is always kind of there as as a basis for her art. But she, and she had, she had a, a lot of different styles. She had the surrealist time in the thirties, the very mystical atmosphere. She did some experiments with the kind of post-cubism or expressionism uh, they were some just she was she, she was constantly looking for 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 her style which is an it's interesting isn't it because 
because in terms of illustration, she had a very recognizable style. That was totally recognizable. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when it came to everything she wrote herself. She could uh, change her style if you think about the hunting of the snark in 1959. Mm. There, it's again another style or what, what she did for um, The Hobbit mm-hmm. some yeah. years later. Perhaps uh, Alice in Wonderland, that is, it rem- reminds me most of her illustrations for the movements. Mm. But it's true. So, so as, a, as, as an illustrator, she is totally rec- recognizable. But if you are looking at her paintings, she is const- in constant search yeah. For, yeah. for something else. Uh, there were times when she was a pure realist. At the end of 50s, in the, in the 60s, there, there was this abstract period or nearly abstract period. But I don't think it was, that, it was very much because she would have wanted it. It was because of the time and the pressure yes. okay. of, of the era. Yes. So in Finland, everybody had to paint abstract in the 60s. Okay, so so she, she was more or less, she was uh, felt, oh, I have to do it too. Okay. Um, and I, 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 um, you said somewhere that her motto was work and love, and work first, but love very yeah. close. And I was wondering, you can see a lot of the people she loved in her work. How important is it to know about that biography when you're looking at the art? Do you need to or not really? You don't need It, you, you get extra levels yeah. when you know it. You can, you can, you can make connections and, and see, oh, yeah, that's because of that. That's because what happened. And, and this is, this is uh, when she fell in love with somebody. Yeah. And now, a new, again, a new character appears in the movements. It's okay, it's, it's okay to know it, but it's, it's not necessary in order to get something of, of her work. That was Suinto Fritzi and Lucy Dallas at the Dulwich Picture Gallery in South London. The exhibition will be reviewed in a forthcoming issue of the TLS. It's a real pleasure to meet the, you struggling over the pronunciation of someone's name. That's what it's like for me. <laughs> well, I'm the whole glad time. you're enjoying it. I am. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed you. I enjoyed your little furrow brow as you <laughs> tried to do it, and that's what it's totally like. At least like I'm for me. trying. That's what's, I that's do what's try. so important. I do. I try. <laughs> do you don't think I try? <laughs> no, I believe I, that you try. I try. <laughs> That's all we've got time for this week, which is probably a good thing. Our thanks go to <laughs> Alif Scott, Georgina Colby, indie pop star Lucy Dallas, and So Into Fritzy. <laughs> so Into Fritzy. Do go to the dash tls.co.uk or your local shop for this week's edition of the paper, which also has pieces on different journals of note Armando Yanucci's film about Stalin and a view of the Victorian century. Next week's paper is our biannual philosophy special What is Philosophy? And why are people religious are just two of the questions we shall ask and answer. Thea and I are too little existentially inclined to answer them, so Toby and Lucy will step in. No pressure, guys. Until we meet again, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.